Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Sir Ian Rankin and Viaplay's Philippa Wallerstam about their new adaptation of the author's best-selling Rebus detective novels. Ty Randolph and Brian Smiley on the expansion of US comedian Kevin Hart's production company Heartbeat and Cosmo Media Lab's Alexander Bushnell and Goldfinch's Phil McKenzie on the metaverse and Web3 technology. Nordic streamer Viaplay launched in the UK on November the 1st and unveiled its inaugural local commission, a new adaptation of Sir Ian Rankin's best-selling Rebus detective novels. The six-part series, described as a major reimagining of the stories about the titular Scottish police officer, was originally in the works at the BBC through Sony Pictures' television-backed 11th Hour Films. But with development at the UK pubcaster having stalled, Viaplay stepped in, seeing an opportunity to make Rebus among its flagship original UK titles, with Gregory Burke attached as creator and writer. Rankin, together with Viaplay Group Chief Content Officer Philippa Wallerstam, spoke to Nico Franks about the project and how this latest incarnation will be different. I suppose I'll start with the, uh, not elephant in the room, but I remember we were writing about a Rebus adaptation a few years ago that the BBC was attached to. So I suppose my first question will be kind of how has it ended up now that it's a, a Viaplay original? Um, well, Viaplay were very interested and very enthusiastic. That's the main thing. And as you know, television, especially terrestrial television, can be glacial in the way that it makes decisions and gets stuff done. Um, so you can be hanging around for a long, long time with what seems like no progress. And so 11th Hour Productions, who are the TV company that we were working with, me and Greg, the screenwriter, they said, well, this company called Viaplay are very interested. And we we met and we talked and we just liked them straight away. And what we specifically liked was that they said, um, we're, we're, going to be, we're going to be hands off. You know, your script is your script, your ideas are your ideas. But we would love it to be at minimum six hours to tell the story with the hope of a, a second, third, fourth season. And having been ill-served by terrestrial television in the past, where I'd found Rebus novels compressed to 45 minutes per book, that was a big plus for me, was that right from the get-go, it seemed like Fireplay and us were singing from the same hymn sheet. And also, when we had our first meetings, the reference point that they had was what's been done with the Harry Bosch books in America. And I'm a huge fan both of Michael Connolly's books and of how those books have been translated to the screen. So I thought if we can do something similar with Rebus, I will be very happy. And Philippa, for you, what attracted you to the Rebus adaptations? Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's great uh, to hear that, uh, you know, we have the same vision. Uh, but for us, you have been following our content for, for quite some time. And, you know, we've been sort of searching for the perfect project uh, in the UK uh, for a long time. And uh, as you also know, we have a sort of strong experience of uh, crime stories and how strong uh, crime stories can be uh, when they're done right. So, of course, that has always been sort of our dream scenario. Um, and we have been searching for a long time and also waiting for sort of the right project to start with. So when this opportunity came up, it very much was kind of the perfect opportunity at the right time. Uh, so I guess that's sort of the this, this story from our end, because for us, the project ticks so many boxes. It's fantastic, amazing universe created around Rebus. Uh, as Ian said, we can continue for many seasons. Um, we can build it broad. It is sort of it's quite close to our sort of heart when it comes to Nordic crime stories, but yet still very local. Uh, and that is also important for us when we do a project in the UK, especially our first uh, big project in the UK. We have sort of huge respect for working with local talents. Uh, and that's also something that we learned from our home markets. Uh, so here in the combination with Ian, Greg and 11th Hour with such a strong IP, it really was the perfect match. So that's uh, Gregory Burke. So he's a, a fellow Pfeiffer. Is that right, mm -hmm. Ian? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I've been a fan of Gregory Burke since his very first stage play. His very first stage play was named Gagarin Way, which was a street, a real street in Fife that I used to go past every day on my way to school. So there was that, you know, connection between us. Uh, like Rebus, we are working class lads from Fife. So we've got all of that in common. So Gregory, who knows the books very well, also knows the inside of Rebus's head. He knows where he's coming from. He knows his philosophy of life. He knows that little grain of darkness that's within everybody from that part of the world. Um, and as has just been said, the Scottish crime fiction generally has that gothic, that dark gothic sensibility. But at the same time, it's urban fiction. It's set in an urban setting, which makes it very close in its DNA to what's happening in Scandinavian Nordic crime fiction at the moment. And the best Nordic crime fiction, the stuff I enjoy reading, has always got a political element and a social element. It's about why crime crime happens as much as about the whodunit and that's something we're hoping to get across in this tv show yeah i'm interested in in finding out so how will it um differ from the previous rebus adaptation um to reflect kind of modern times well i i we're making him younger to start with we're going with a younger rebus which i think is great because suddenly he will be um because the rebus that readers know now in the present day is getting on for 70 years old and is no longer the kind of macho figure that he was in the early books. Well, we're going back to that macho figure, but setting the books in the here and now, so we can talk about some of these issues to do with the way the world is moving, the kind of chaos around us, and how we try and shape it, and what effect it has on us as human beings and individuals in society. So all of that, I think, will be contained in the stories. And uh, I, I, I felt that in the early Rebus novels, Rebus's brother plays a part. But then I kind of I let him go. Uh, he slipped away and, and never returned. And I, I thought there was a lot of unfinished business there. And Gregory picked up on that as well. And Greg said, you know, I think his brother, I think the, kinda, the two warring brothers, as it were, should be central to the story. So it's great to bring his brother back and get the two of them to to sort some things out between them. So all of that, I think the fact it's set over six hours means that we give the characters room to breathe. We're not having to shoehorn stuff in or cut too much stuff out. You know, things will make sense if you stick around. Um, it doesn't all have to be sort of given to you on a plate in the first five minutes. So that's just fantastic. And Greg, uh, for a long time, has been looking for a project that would be set in Scotland, that would feature characters who resonate with him and where he can talk a little bit about politics and society, but without getting on a soapbox and preaching to the viewer. I know in your recent books, you've kind of been exploring how attitudes to the police have changed. So will that be reflected in this series as well? Uh, I would hope so. I would hope so. I think if you stick around long enough, de almost definitely. Uh, I mean, it's one of the things that we have to think about as people who write about contemporary police officers is, are these the good guys? To what extent do we get the police we deserve, the police we need, the police we want? And these days, you know, I think glibly many of us thought that the police had cleaned up their act because modern technology made it much harder for them to bend the rules and break the rules. But it transpires that police are still, some police, by no means all of them, but some police are still trying to get away with terrible things. And if, unless their fellow officers come forward, uh, they will continue to get away with these things. And Philippa, as part of Viaplay's kind of international launch strategy in different countries, the ambition is to kind of go beyond Nordic Noir. So is this kind of part of that strategy? So still looking for noir, but in different territories? Yes, uh, um, yes and no. Uh, so in all of the markets where we enter, so now with sort of Poland, Netherlands and, uh, and now the UK, um, we are looking for local shows. Um, it doesn't mean that they all have to be crime, but of course it is a good starting point. Uh, so I would say, yes, that's what we really have been searching for as the first project in the UK. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we can broaden out, uh, sorry, that we can't broaden out from there. I have to also have to say another thing, which I think is also fantastic uh, with Rebus. And that is, of course, we talk a lot about the UK now, of course, because we launched in, uh, in the UK yesterday. Uh, but I am very confident uh, that this fantastic show uh, and it's very, it's very current script uh, is going to definitely gain audiences across all of our markets. So it is, of course, with the UK first, but definitely the ambition to travel. And it's, as Ian said, it's not far from what we're used to, especially in the Nordics. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of, and we see kind of British crime when done well is working really well in our other markets as well. And it might be early days for this kind of thing, but um, in terms of kind of, 
I'm always interested how people watch foreign language drama or, you know, in terms of the Scandi Noir. Um, obviously, we've been used to watching it with subtitles. Um, I'm interested as the kind of genre evolves, but also as shows get more and more local. Obviously, there's Scottish accents. So how keen are you, Ian, for the for the for the adaptation to really kind of show true kind of Scottish accents on screen that that might be potentially difficult on the ear for international audiences? Um, well, speaking as a as a, a working class Scot who travels to a lot of different regions of the world to talk about my books, I've never really had much difficulty apart from possibly in America, where everybody thinks I'm Australian. Um, it's never been an issue in Scandinavia because people there are incredibly well educated and literate and and can understand you. And I think you know if if subtitles are needed, subtitles will be used. We are very keen. Greg Gregory is very keen that we we keep it as realistic as possible in terms of the language that's going to be used and and yeah and we'll just thing is that an audience an audience who are interested in crime are usually a very intelligent audience anyway and i've sometimes found this again in the states my publishers would change the word pavement to sidewalk although we, we in the uk would never use that term because they thought readers wouldn't understand then i get lots of angry letters from american fans going the reason we come to these books this character is because we want to know about your culture. Please stop trying to Americanize your culture. So I have to go back to the to the publisher and say, look, this, what, what you're doing is wrong. And to to give them credit, my American publishers have mostly stopped doing that now. So they will use pavement instead of sidewalk. Um, but yeah, it's 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 um it's interesting. I think the the UK audience have become much more used to subtitled TV because we do love these overseas shows and we hate things that are dubbed. Um, so uh, I don't see it being an issue at all. I think if we need subtitles we use them and what do you make of the kind of true crime wave in terms of documentaries and unscripted is that kind of obviously you know your name is synonymous with crime drama but how how do you feel about it seemingly more and more audiences kind of kind of their appetite for for true crime documentaries I mean, it's fascinating to me. I think um, I, I think we have to be careful that we don't um, over-romanticise the killers. Oftentimes in the past, the killers have been the focus of attention rather than the victims. And hopefully that is changing and people now are much more conscious that lives have been changed dramatically and horrendously by these actions. And so to glamorise or fetishise the person carrying out the crimes is wrong. And a lot of the true crime podcasts actually are trying to get justice. They're oftentimes trying to get to the truth. Somebody has been put in jail unnecessarily and you'll use the podcast to try and free them, for example, or a crime has been committed and nobody's ever been brought to, to justice for it. Let's see if we can years later get justice using new technology and new techniques that are available to us to get to the truth. Um, I'm all in favour of that. I think it's I think it's these days, if you've committed a crime in the past, you must be absolutely terrified. You know, you might have thought you got away with it because you did it 23 30, 40 or 50 years ago. But because of new techniques, because of new technology and because of podcasters, the chances of you getting caught are actually quite high. And final question uh, for you, Philippa. So if you could give our listeners uh, in the UK a kind of what should they expect in terms of bioplays, kind of commissioning, kind of the, the amount that you're commissioning and what else you're looking for? Yes, um, it is, of course, the, the very good, good question. So I think what you should expect in terms of genres is very much to start with the broad genre. So we will definitely go for crime and also other sort of broad dramas based on true stories, uh, sort of the uh, uh, type of stories that we know we have traction with uh, in the Nordics. And we also have enough content to support already on the flat platform. So that's where we will start. In terms of number of shows uh, commissioned in the UK, it's a little bit of a gray area because it also depends on where do you, where do you draw the, the definition. Uh, since we are also doing sort of uh, shows in the Nordics with sort of greatest talent and sort of hybrids uh, in, in a way, but with kind of for pure local British shows uh, commissioned with uh, British production companies, etc. I also don't want to give a number because it depends on the uh, uh, size of the projects, but uh, this is a good starting point and you should definitely expect more.
Los Angeles-based Heartbeat was officially formed earlier this year through the combination of two of comedian Kevin Hart's existing businesses, Laugh Out Loud and Heartbeat Productions, coinciding with a $100 million capital raise. 13 Heartbeat projects have already been released this year, including Netflix movie Me Time starring Hart and Mark Wahlberg, and upcoming releases include HBO Max animated comedy Storytown, Netflix heist thriller Lift, and two-part Apple TV Plus documentary number one on the call sheet. Heartbeat Chief Executive Ty Randolph and President and Chief Content Officer Brian Smiley spoke to Jordan Pinto about the process of securing the investment from private equity firm Abri Partners, doubling down on in-house development and how the company is discovering and supporting the next generation of comedic voices. In late April, um, it was announced that Heartbeat, which was formed from the combination of two of Kevin Hart's existing businesses, Laugh Out Loud and Heartbeat Productions, um, had raised around 100 million in investments from private equity firm Avery Partners. Um, that feels like as good a place as any to start. So if maybe you could tell me a bit about uh, the process of raising the capital and how that led to securing the $100 million investment. Sure. You know, um, so I have been uh, working with Kevin in different capacities, um, first at Laugh Out Loud and then at Heartbeat Productions for a little under five years. And so um, call it the end of 2020, I suppose. Um, I expanded my role at at Kevin and, and Brian invitation. So I expanded my role as COO of Laugh Out Loud to include um, Heartbeat Productions as well. So we set up sort of this shared services entity between the two companies. And, um, you know, increasingly, as you know, I gained greater visibility across the portfolio, it was increasingly obvious that the growth trajectories of each company was sort of in the other's backyard, right? There was so much synergy, we were working a lot closer together. Um, You know, Laugh Out Loud was, which was first sort of, you know, um, founded as a a sort of next-gen streaming service that was um, more digital first, was doing, you know, more traditional and vice versa, Heartbeat Productions, um, you know, was increasingly in branded entertainment conversations and digital entertainment conversations. And the the expertise that was under the hood between the two companies, we realized, um, you know, there was just sort of like so much um, power, intellectual capital, um, so many relationships it would be better leveraged together. And then called the middle of last year, Kevin Hart had just returned from shooting a film and wanted to get the whole team together for a retreat. So in the middle of the pandemic, we took about 60 folks down to Cabo and uh, we were putting together, you know, sort of a, a first day general assembly about how we worked closer together. And I, I remember I opened that day and Kevin closed. And the very next morning, we all got together, you know, one of the villas, Brian, Jeff Clanagan, myself, Kevin Hart, and, you know, started to to map out the future of what this merger could look like, because seeing all the team together, you know, seeing everyone really fired up around the common goal, it became really, really obvious that now was the time. And so we immediately went into um, a sort of parallel path around merging the entities and um, further capitalizing the company to fuel this vision that we had, um, you know, to uh, build one of the most inclusive and innovative entertainment companies in the world, all in service of this mission to keep the world laughing together. And then how did the conversations with Abre Partners um, or Abri Partners evolve and, and when did those begin? Interestingly enough, um, you know, we had been, I'd been introduced to, um, you know, someone at the firm uh, several months prior. And so as we were kicking off the process, um, we had already been in touch. And I remember saying, hey, if we ever decide to merge these things, we'll give you a call. And we ended up, you know, running a formal process. We we, you know, talked to lots of folks and received multiple offers. But, you know, what was consistent about Abri was that they really got the business. Um, they were great partners, generally, the posture, they understood us, they understood what we were trying to accomplish. Um, you know, all the leadership team, myself, Brian, Kevin, all got on well with them. And so it was, it was sort of a full circle moment with we this full process. And, and they still sort of came out as the sort of the obvious partner for us. Um, and so, you know, we finalized the merger and at the end of December. So, you know, the company debuted January 1, New Heartbeat debuted January 1 um, of this year. And then we completed, you know, the 
capital raise, uh, you know, about three months after that and announced it in April. How do you plan to, to, to de- deploy some of that uh, 100 million? Um, you know, I'm sure it hasn't all been used as yet, but um, yeah, I'd be interested to know uh, how things are evolving. Not yet. <laughs> Brian's office, we're spinning it on furniture. I'm kidding, we're actually moving out of the space. Um, you know, I'll let Brian speak to a good bit of that yeah. because a lot of what we, you know, endeavor to do is really to have, um, you know, more independence and more mobility in the, the fueling of our content efforts across all of our divisions. So, you know, we're, we restructured um, the entities and all of our assets into three distinct divisions under the Heartbeat umbrella. And so we have Heartbeat Studios, um, which Brian leads, and he can talk about, you know, our um, sort of supercharged content creation and, and financing efforts there. Um, we also have a media organization um, that focuses on distribution and the activation of audiences and the, the exploitation of the rights that, that we maintain from the content. And then finally, Pulse, which is our um, you know, creative agency and, and branded entertainment arm. But much of it has, uh, you know, the, the investment has been around supercharging the studio group. Do you want to speak to it? Yeah, I mean, to Ty's point, you know, we really have decided to kind of take more control over our creative process. So we're deploying a lot of capital to script development, IP acquisition. You know, in the past, we had to go and ask a studio uh, like a whoever to say, hey, we love this idea. Will you pay for it? You know, now we have the power to do it ourselves, quite frankly, and package those things with great actors and great directors. That really gives us more mobility and allows us to put the projects together a lot faster. Um, The second part of that is, you know, we do do some financing of content, whether it's um, unscripted series or lower budget features. So certainly the capital allows us to be more free to do the projects we really care about. Brian, how much of a shift has that been for the company? Um, as you said, not having to go to, go to studios anymore and not maybe that, you know, that I think can slow things down or maybe it can kind of change the kind of kernel of an idea. Um, if you're able to move forward with, the, you know, with the, with this new financing, if you're able to move forward with the ideas that you, you, you know, you love and you want to put all your efforts in, how much of a shift has that been for the company? I mean, pretty dramatic one. I mean, I think we're still in the process of, you know, we're used to having to ask. So now we're like, yeah, we have capital. Let's just do it. We believe in it. Let's do it. So I think the team now more than ever has become more aggressive about really chasing the big IP. Uh, now we can be more competitive when the, the marketplace demands it. Uh, and certainly I think we're finding a lot more incoming business too from um, writing director talent around town who have ideas that that they really want to work with the production company first on before we go to a bigger studio. So uh, we've seen already a pretty tremendous shift and you know really excited about um, how these to start coming to fruition over the next couple of years. And to Brian's point, you know, it's, it's really enabled mobility. We have a saying around here, right piece, right place, right? So, you know, there's still a ton that we do in concert with, you know, um, sort of studio and distribution partners that we have, you know, sort of like, you know, really big commercial deals with Netflix, um, you know, on the, the feature side. Um, you know, we do a lot of work um, with uh, NBC Peacock. They're an investor in the company, you know, and um, we we're doing a ton on the unscripted side there. But also we have the ability now, as Brian was saying, to just be more mobile, um, you know, in things that fall outside of that category and things that, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, sort of on someone else's programming roster or that we know that this is really, really important for us to maintain a level of creative control, maintain more, you know, autonomy around the distribution, um, you know, strategy. And so that mobility has been amazing, right? So there's still a ton that we do with those big institutional partners. And then there's, you know, a ton that we can do independently. How has the company's new structure um, set Heartbeat up to create new opportunities for comedic talent? I mean, you know, so what's interesting is this, you hear in many business models, you know, reference to a flywheel, but it really is activating here, right? We we have the ability to um, make market and monetize just about any type of content across, um, you know, digital, TV, film, audio. And so, and you see so much of that, you you know, sort of like activate it in a, in a mega talent like Kevin Hart, right? So um, with their brand deals over here and audio books and podcasts and radio shows and film and TV, what's interesting is all that infrastructure lives here. So that same machine that we turn on in service of him, we're able to turn on in service of any other talent as well. And so that is probably um, the biggest shift that I know, you know, one of his key priorities is to create those opportunities for, you know, those who are fueling the future of funny and the future of entertainment. And I was going to just add to that. I mean, you know, we, because we work in so many different formats via, via audio or unscripted TV or feature films, we can really incubate um, ideas with up and coming talent in kind of low cost uh, formats. 
And if it works, then we have the ability to really upgrade that or upscale that to uh, traditional television or movies. And I think that opportunity is really great because it allows you to work with people who are next up uh, and really build that relationship and really be there next to them as their careers kind of grow. And to that point, to partner with them on ideas, I think Right Piece, Right Place comes into, you know, there's an application around distribution, but there's also an application around format. Um, We're able to take an idea. Someone can walk in the door with an idea and, you know, we have the the sort of like breadth of resources and relationships to think like, oh, should that be a podcast or a limited series or a film or, you know, some combination of them? And then the the actual relationships and infrastructure to activate on whatever the best format is for that idea. I think I read somewhere that the company has about 60 projects, either in development or production <laughs> at the moment, r- roughly speaking. Um, how, how big in terms of personnel, how big is the company at the moment? So we have several dozen folks and <laughs> I, I usually like... Um, Um, uh, don't mention exact numbers. Um, But I will say we punch above our weight class. Like we orient ourselves to round, uh, we're just nimble operators, period. And so, you know, we've definitely deployed capital to fuel the growth of the team, but we like being a bit smaller and and, and more nimble. That said, we're growing fast. We've outgrown the office that we're sitting in right now. We're about to move across town. Um, And Brian, you can kind of speak to the composition of studio groups here. Yeah, so we're we're divided among um, audio, television, kind of unscripted series and also uh, low-budget movies and then our feature film business. So we do kind of a little bit of everything. And to the question you asked earlier, you know, we have a really robust pipeline of development. I think we have shows set up in almost every network in town, movies at almost every studio in town. You know, it's funny, I was looking at something earlier. In 2022, I believe we released something like 13 projects, right, to date. And that's just, you know, in the last 10 months. And that's, by the way, that's just our film and television projects, not including um, our audio projects. So that gives you an idea. Or any of the branded entertainment things. Or any yeah. of the brand entertainment things. So it gives you an idea of just how much kind of development and, and deal flow we have coming to the company. And it translates to to real conversion, which we're really excited about. Yeah, that, that is, that's a lot of projects, uh, 13 so far in 2022. Is is the goal to, do you think, keep it around, around 13, 14 um, in the years ahead and kind of do bigger projects, but the similar, similar volume or start doing more, more projects? Another mantra that we have internally is impact. This is my personal, when people get tired of hearing it, is impact over activity. So, you know, we want to be most impactful. So if impact looks like volume, right, if that's the path to keeping the world laughing together and to, you know, supporting more creators and to really scaling this business, then it will be that. But we're also open and find ourselves, you know, in a couple of scenarios now, whether it be in deal negotiations or, or contemplation, where there may be fewer larger, you know, projects on, or where we're taking on, you know, um, you know, more financing responsibility, more production responsibility. So some, so some combination, right? So it's like scaling impact. And that doesn't always necessarily mean sort of scaling volume and activity, but I, I don't, I can't imagine us any fewer next year. (laughs) Is it primarily comedy and comedy focused um, entertainment that you're looking at or is, is there the potential to also branch beyond that? Like, I'm not saying that, you know, you're looking at doing like a Jeffrey Dahmer style, uh, yeah. like a dark series, but is, yeah. you know, is, is there, is there a bit of leeway to, uh, to, to look beyond uh, comedy focused? Uh, entertainment? I mean, certainly a lot of our core is comedy, you know, but if you look at the things we've already released, quite frankly, you, you do see it, it kind of varies genre by genre. I mean, you know, we just wrapped a massive film for Netflix coming out next year, which is a uh, action heist movie, comedy elements in it, but I would not call it a comedy. Uh, you know, we, we have a project at Apple uh, that is a very much a high-end drama uh, starring Omari Harwick. So I think it really is about things that were fat. True story, which released uh, uh, late last year, which is a thriller, right? So it's really about things we just really believe in, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Um, and we'll take the right swings. But our core is comedy. It will remain comedy. We have a slate of amazing comedy features starring some of the biggest comedy stars in the world uh, rolling out in the next couple of years. So so you'll see more of that. But, but we do respond to things that we like. And we talk about high-impact entertainment. I think if there's a through line, you know, um, Kevin Hart, who's our chairman and the founder of this company, is a really high-impact entertainer, whether you're seeing him in brand and stand-up in a thriller. And, um, you know, we we talk about this idea of, like, the highest common denominator 
um, you know, projects that could bring the most people together, whether that's a live event or a limited series or a podcast where you can get the the greatest diverse cross-section of folks around something that feels like sort of like, you know, we humor, heart and heat. Some of those elements have to be in it for it to make sense for us. And so as a result of that, like, yeah, so sort of like if comedy is the core, there all of these sort of expansions outside. But when you see heartbeat show up, like it should always be high impact. You can always expect humor, heart, heat, and some element of relatability, right? Because that that accessibility, that relatability, I think is what drives universality and, um, and, and universal appeal. And when you look at the numbers that we've been able to garner, you know, Brian can speak to some of them. You, you see we're really reaching audiences in mass and, and that's important to us. Yeah, I mean, to Ty's point, and, you know, we can't give exact stats, mm-hmm. but I can say everything to date that uh, we've released on Netflix the last uh, year and a half, all of them have been number one in most cases for many weeks running globally. So you're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of households that are viewing our content, which we are really proud of, quite frankly. Could, could you just name some of the shows uh, that you're mentioning there that were, you know, number one on Netflix? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm trying to think of things that they have announced. Uh, so Fatherhood was certainly uh, a massive success for them, which mm-hmm. uh, they they publicly announced that. True Story was a, a, a massive hit for them, uh, our series that released late last year. You know, yeah, I guess we can talk about Me Time, which just released, mm-hmm. was a massive, massive hit. Uh, we'll, we'll let them publish those numbers officially, yeah. but uh, a massive hit over index for a comedy, yeah. a global comedy. Um, but we've also delivered some of the biggest, you know, sort of like viral and buzzy yeah. hits for Peacock mm-hmm. with Heart to Heart, right? Like there was this whole sensation and all of these sort of like individual episodes that took on this viral nature of um, their own. We we did a, um, a, a show with Snoop, the mm-hmm. Olympics highlights during it and it garnered you know a ton of buzz I don't want to quantify it because I don't think that, that they publicly quantified it but you know anybody who was anywhere around the Olympics you kind of couldn't miss it um you know we debuted the number one podcast across Sirius XM and Stitcher so this idea of number one suppose it's just not about bragging right but it's an indication of that sort of mass appeal right you go back to the mission of keeping the world laughing together laughter is the vehicle but the objective is together and so this idea about bringing audiences together around high impact feel good entertainment the the number ones are an indicator that that we're doing that job are you finding there's much crossover between what goes on in the podcasting business and what's happening on the on the film and, and tv side or uh, for the most part are those separate i mean i, I think they're pretty separate i mean I, I maybe you see more connection between podcasts and television i mean certainly we've seen that true crime podcast as you know if you know the podcast business though they're massive hits as a genre and they're becoming massive hits um on television as well whether it be you know Dahmer series is scripted or a lot of the really interesting produced documentaries that are releasing these days so you do see that strong correlation i think it's it's fair to say that you know there's a, there's a lot of companies with high profile celebrities involved and one of the intriguing parts of it uh, i think on the industry side is you know how, how involved is is that celebrity or that well known person um with the with the company so I, i'd be interested to know um yeah to what degree uh, kevin is hands hands on with the company and the the decisions that are made <laughs> who takes that one? <laughs> Do you wanna... well i can speak from the content standpoint mm-hmm. i'll take that half of it mm-hmm. he is exceptionally involved uh he's a very creative driven person so he often has great ideas. I mean, I could say that True Story, the series from last year, was a, a brainchild of, of him and uh, and Eric Newman and Charles Murray, like literally out of Kevin's brain, right? So he's very involved. He, he really cares about the company and the product we're putting out. And, and he is often on the other end of the phone with, with new yeah. ideas. And even on the, you know, the business side, uh, I'm consistently just impressed with his, his business acumen and his capacity to track the details of multiple complex businesses, right? Like, you know, for we've got three different um, divisions, each with multiple revenue streams and lines of business underneath them. And he intimately understands each of them. Um, at the same time, like trust the executives that he's put in place to run the company and, and, and provides that level of autonomy while he runs multiple businesses or owns multiple businesses in very different verticals from QSR, from a vegan QS, a vegetarian QSR restaurant to a tequila, um, to a, a ventures um, outlet. And so I think our next meeting today is with Kevin. 
Kevin, <laughs> in here to talk about some mix of business and creative. And, uh, you know, I know there are a number of celebrities who have, you know, production companies and banners. I can't say that I've ever encountered one who has a, um, a, a firmer grasp on the business. Um, more broadly, what are some of the trends that you're observing in the comedy TV marketplace? And how is the company, um, you know, looking to tap into those? Well, I mean, I think people continue to want to build ideas around um, really unique voices, people with really clear point of views. So, you know, on our end, we pride ourselves in working with that level of talent, whether it's, uh, you know, the Little Dickies who who stars in Dave, the show we produce for FX, or, you know, some of the people on our podcast, like like Punky and uh, or Amanda Seals, you know, people who have just really clear voices. Oftentimes they have some of the best stories to tell uh, and we develop around them. And with the um, $100 million capital raise, um, is there a chance that you would also look at acquiring other companies? Is, is that with that? Or do you see this as kind of a phase of organic growth? No, definitely. Um, you know, like I said, we, we talked about that mission of keeping the world laughing together and, you know, this flywheel of vertically integrated businesses. So we are always on the lookout for businesses and aqua hires that either fuel that mission or extend and accelerate any of those lines of business or open up areas that can integrate into that flywheel that aren't there. Um, and so that's that's really important for us. We've been scaling the team and, um, you know, bringing on really great leadership and, you know, the the next natural phase, um, you know, from an investment and a growth perspective will be for, you know, us to start to um, look at sort of expanding through, through acquisition and, and through strategic partnership in that way. Um, and looking ahead, what are some of the projects? I think you've named a couple of them already, but what, what are some of the projects that have already been announced but haven't been released? yet that you're um, really working hard on at the moment? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so we, we just wrapped a heist movie called Lift, which is a, a big international film we shot in London and Belfast and Italy. Uh, and it, it really is Kevin as uh, a leading man uh, in a way I think we've never seen him before. It was directed by uh, F. Gary Gray, who did Straight Outta Compton, Fast and the Furious and other movies like that. That's when it comes out sometime late next year. Number one on the call sheet. We're really excited about it. Uh, we do two documentaries with Apple where we interview the top leading men who are African-American that made it to that position of number one on the call sheet, which is a you know a huge thing to achieve in an actor's career. Uh, we talked to them about their kind of journey to get there. We did a, a kind of a sister doc to that uh, with the top African-American women in the business who also reached the same kind of goal in their career. And we explore again their paths as well. So that's two separate feature docs uh, that we're really excited about that'll, that'll release sometime next year. The other, you know, just one of the other areas of, you know, significant high growth um, is the work that we're doing on the the, the, brand, the brand entertainment side and, and the brand consultancy piece. Um, you know, we're really proud of sort of the innovative storytelling that we're doing with the likes of Procter & Gamble and Chase and DraftKings. And so, um, you know, there's a lot that's in the works behind the scenes there that we're excited to sort of like lift the curtain on going into next year as well. Los Angeles-based Cosmo Media Labs was set up earlier this year by former MGM executive Alexander Bushnell and entertainment tech entrepreneur Tobias Kaiser, aiming to help IP and brand owners take advantage of new opportunities with Web3 technology. Cosmo launched in September with backing from Animoca brand's own metaverse The Sandbox, marking the latter's first investment in a production studio, and the business is already tied with BuzzFeed's complex networks. Bushnell, who is Cosmo chief executive, was at MIPCOM in Cannes last month meeting with further prospective partners, and he spoke to me there about the company's ambitions, the potential of virtual worlds, non-fungible tokens, and the way traditional media is embracing them. So uh, my name is Alexander Bushnell. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cosmo Media Labs. You know, my background is in more traditional media and television production development, um, was with MGM Studios for many years as vice president of alternative media and, uh, and then global formats. Um, and now we, we started this new company, this new outfit that kind of bridges traditional media um, with uh, Web3, the so-called metaverse, and uh, kind of this new, this new frontier of, of digital content. That's quite a change going into Web3 from uh, right. uh, TV formats. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that 
transition and yeah. uh, also explain a little bit about what that means for people who might not be familiar with some of these terms. A hundred percent. Well, I have to say I got very lucky because um, a good friend of mine, Arthur Madrid, the CEO of, of The Sandbox, um, you know, we were, we were friends first and uh, once I came to MGM, he approached me about um, doing a deal, how he's done similar with other studios, because he, his old company, Pixel, did the mobile game, for example, for Garfield, or for Peanuts with Snoopy, et cetera, and found um, a lot of success there. So he approached me, um, wanting to do a deal with MGM, and uh, you know, it's always interesting with, if you're friends first, you're kind of a little nervous of how that's gonna change the dynamic and everything, but you know, I knew that, that Arthur and his team are, you know, the leaders back then in that space, and now arguably in, in the metaverse space with the Sandbox platform. But, but long story short, we were able to pull off a deal and and make the um, Adams Family mobile game happen, and it was an amazing success. I mean, his team knocked it out of the park. I got to have a little bit of a taste of what that world looked like, and and. Uh, and I think, you know, we were number one on the Apple charts for a little bit of a game of the day and, um, you know, still a very popular game. And so that was kind of my first foray. And, uh, and once I left the studio, he approached me quite soon saying, listen, this is going to be a big thing. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here. And uh, even if you can't wrap your head around or, I mean, nobody can really wrap their head around everything and everything it can be because I think there's still a lot of, a lot of um, space or a lot of opportunity that not everybody has figured out. But so I had the luxury of shadowing him, of joining him, you know, at Art Basel or in New York when the big SoftBank deal happened with his Series B round of raising 93 million and, um, and kind of really getting to see um, and getting an idea of that world and what it meant and all the possibilities. And step by step, we kind of formed what would be the perfect business structure and what would be a content studio that can really bridge that gap because he started making deals with, you know, Gucci, Adidas. Uh, you know, at MGM I would do deals with um, iHeartMedia, et cetera. Like, the, 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 the steps were very similar for these legacy brands. But there is just a space of the translator of like, hey, these are the needs and wants of the brand, right? There are aspirations. These are all the different possibilities you have in, in the metaverse or Web3. Um, how do those combine? Where's that sweet spot? And most importantly, how is that something that is entertaining for the user or something that the user wants to engage with? So that was a talent that I had from MGM Studios, it was now just projected on a new platform. The Sandbox, as you mentioned, it's, it's done a lot of uh, media partnerships, but a lot of people within the traditional media business might not even have heard of it. So right. um, just explain a little bit more about it. It's part of Animoca Brands. What is the Sandbox and uh, you know how are they working with media companies? For sure. So the Sandbox is a metaverse platform, um, a metaverse landscape where Anybody can go and, uh, well, first you would, you would acquire their um, cryptocurrency, which is sand, and you can buy anyone, Joe Schmo, um, big brands can buy their land on the sandbox. So brands like, I said, Gucci, Adidas, um, you know, the Bored Apes, which is an, uh, the most famous, arguably, NFT collection, have land there. Um, I mean, and they're doing deals left and right. Time Magazine, they're building Times Square at the moment, not Times Square, but Times Square for the magazine. So, um, um, and I think that, you know, there's, there's almost daily news about a new big, big brand um, um, entering their, their metaverse. So you, you, as a personal individual, can buy land, you can build on that land, you can build a, um, a beautiful architecture, you can build a game, you could build an amusement park that people want to come in, and you can start monetizing that. Or you can just have fun with it, whatever that is, right? And, um, you know, obviously there's a history of great success and because it kind of plays, you know, it, it reminds you of Roblox, right? That is also this vast virtual landscape where, where you know, um, which is mostly geared towards children. Um, can build their own their own games infrastructure, etc., and um, and so it's it's kind of the new evolution combined with this sense of digital ownership that you own this piece of digital real estate, this game, this asset. If it's a you know a sword or a shield or whatever you have kind of created on there, um, is yours and it's yours to keep or yours to sell and or yours to trade. 
Brands are embracing it in a major way. Um, users, however, there's, there's a question mark over that, right? I, I read an article recently saying it's, I think the headline was, it's lonely in the metaverse. And the, the number of people that are actually making use of these platforms is, is, is still very much in its infancy, right? Yes, although I will say that's why I'm, we're quite proud to be partners with, with the Sandbox because even, and, and to be said, right, their main launch is yet to happen. Right now, what they're, essentially it is a series of alphas. So, so at the moment, we're, there is currently an alpha season that is active. And that means that it is almost like um, it is 10 weeks of the sandbox showing, hey, here are some of the lands that are the most developed with the most games. So I think The Walking Dead, for example, is, uh, is one piece of IP that is currently active. So you can fight against zombies in there and, and experience that whole infrastructure. And, um, and so within these 10 weeks, I, even beyond, but like you can win more stuff within these 10 weeks, that's kind of the big release. You go in and you can experience everything that is the sandbox. And, um, and I think their numbers are growing. You know, I think uh, I, the last time I checked, I think it was two million people were using it within this alpha. And, um, and it's only going up from there. So, I, you know, we're lucky enough to be with one of the, one of the um, uh, metaverses that, that is showing constant growth and has real engagement. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll add to that, it's been, a, it's been you know, we, we, we meet with a lot of brands to kind of pitch them, hey, you know, like this is what we would do with your brand and in the metaverse, and this is how we would create your infrastructure and, and very much how I used to pitch to networks back in the day. And, um, and it's, it's been a, quite a pleasure to see you know, because there is obviously a lot of skepticism. I think in Metaverse, the, alone the terminology can give, get some people to give you an eye roll or whatever and has been kind of used ad nauseum. But, um, but once, um, you know, and, and you'll get a comment, well, like, like, it's not really like happening. People just want to have a press release or blah, blah, blah. And then you say, well, actually, like you could just, if you go to the website and you do this and this, you can log in right now and you can, and you know, I've been with the people kind of logging in for the first time and I'm, you know, it's, it's quite cool to see because almost every time the experience is a very positive, like it's an experience of surprise and how much stuff you can actually already engage with and, and do and play and, and experience. Some of us who've been covering the media space for a while might remember something called Second Life. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how is this different from that? Um, well, alone, I think, in, in, in the Web3 aspect of digital ownership itself, right? Um, that whole um, aspect, I think, is such a huge, huge thing of, uh, you know, just, just empowering the user and, and, you know, and fueling creativity in terms of creating your own thing and, and then being able to sell it and adding value and creating a whole virtual economy where people can have... Um, you know, revenue streams that sometimes supplement their main revenue streams, right? Like in certain countries, people are, people have have supplemented their income by by um, building assets, selling NFTs. Obviously, there's NFT artists that are making quite a quite a nice penny, even still in this market. <laughs> And um, as you referenced, there is a bit of skepticism around the, around the space, and uh, you know it, it. It's also true to say that cryptocurrencies have been used as a way for people to launder large amounts of money and all sorts of criminal activities as well. It gets a very bad press as a result. Um, but um, you know, in in line with the global financial markets at the moment, which is kind of interesting in itself, the parallels that are running between the two and, and, and the way that Bitcoin is increasingly kind of moving with the Nasdaq, for example. Right. But it's, you know, it's not in a great place right now. And um, again, you know, the, the conversations that you're having and, and, and trying to convince media partners to engage with it, how much of an uphill struggle is that given the uh, the, the situation that the sort of the overall sector's in? Surprisingly, you know, with the brands that we're, and we're kind of very targeted with whom we approach and who we start the dialogue with. Um, for example, Complex has been an incredibly amazing partner. That's uh, the, our first project um, is with Complex, and we're creating um, this kind of big infrastructure on the sandbox that will ultimately lead to a virtual economy of people being able to open their own digital store to sell their virtual NFT sneakers, but that can translate into IRL in real life sneakers as well. Essentially, this big marketplace is the ultimate goal, and we'll have some gamifications and experiences around that as well. But Complex is a brand that I think sees that there is, and many many of the other brands we're currently talking to as well, and I think, I think in general, people realize that there are some fundamental truths that are 
pretty evident, right? And I would say that goes back to the sense of digital ownership. I think that's something we can all agree on is going to be a thing that's that's going to become normalized, right? And 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 that is a key function when you talk about metaverse or Web three. Um, I think it's fair to say that, however, the again the term is so loaded, metaverse or or um, w whatever it turns out into can change and can adapt, et cetera. But I think these the these key elements of blockchain, digital ownership, et cetera, will remain and are kind of the foundation that it's built on. And I think um, as long as you know companies such as ours and the brands that are um, uh, excited about the space know how to adapt and, and, and kind of evolve as we kind of figure out where is that sweet spot, um, um, then it's, you know, it's just a beautiful evolution of like pushing the envelope of technology and what we're able to do with content and engagement. So tell me a bit more about that relationship with Complex. So um, they've been amazing. So essentially for them, we're building the infrastructure in the sandbox. So that means you know games, experiences, um, but ultimately we're gearing towards this virtual economy of um, you know um, uh, virtual sneakers. Let's say essentially users can build their own store, their own business in Complex Land, and um, and obviously they're you know very um, forward in terms of sneaker culture, um, in terms of street fashion, right? And if you think about the demographics of sneaker culture, it's very much NFT adjacent in the sense of collectibles, hype, and all that good stuff. And then a big reason for us to be at uh, at the market, for example, is and what we're you know kind of bridging that traditional media with the meta is um, at the same time Complex China is um, is about to um, air a new format that is essentially a talking sh talk show format that delves into fashion, delves into sneakers, but then has a big NFT component. Um, for example, you'll have an element that's, that uh, we call view to earn. So you can see the show on TV, you can scan the barcode, and then if you go in the metaverse, you'll have an aspect that you know, you'll, you'll get an advantage, you'll get a reward, reward for that. And, um, and so we're adapting, we're partnered up with them to, um, you know, to get the format done in the US um, and internationally as well. So that, it's, a, it's a very good example of you know, how we're having our feet kind of in both sides of, of media. When you look back at the, uh, the studios that you've worked with in the past, so, so MGM, but also the, the broader sort of studio system, and, and Lionsgate is, is doing a fair bit in this space as well. Fox Entertainment as well has, has set up, together with Bento Box, uh, Blockchain Creative Labs as well. Right. So when you look at Hollywood and the traditional kind of studio system, there's some pretty encouraging signs there, I suppose, that they're, they're, they're really getting behind this. A hundred percent. Lionsgate, for example, as you mentioned, they're also in the sandbox. Um, and, um, and you can see the, the excitement um, uh, about, you know, being kind of in this new space, this new kind of frontier, because it is a beautiful thing to kind of rewrite the rule book a little bit, right? Like, like they're reimagined. I think it fuels creativity um, just thinking about this whole another dimension that we can add on, um, either it is an add-on or it is it lives by itself. When when you know um, a studio has you know their own amusement park in the metaverse or whatever that people can can engage with, and um, yeah, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, legends like Bob Iger, for example, has been very active in the space, and and you're absolutely right. It gives it gives smaller fish like us a little comfort <laughs> that. Uh, that um, that yeah you know I think everybody is moving in the right direction, um, and I will say just to go back to the note of um, of you know the markets as you you know pointed out it's kind of in parallel right with what's going on in the in the old school financial markets. I think one of the benefits of it is is that it has a little bit of a cleansing. Um, uh, quality towards it, right? Because I think the space was so aggressive with, you know, people that were just like creating NFTs to make a quick buck, scam artists, etc. Right? Like it was, it was so hyped out that I think this kind of gives a, allows everybody to do a fresh start in or restart with true professionals that that see it for what it is and see see the true potential in it and want to do it right.
London-based independent producer and financier The Goldfinch Group struck a partnership this summer with Web3 technology specialist M-Content, whose platform provides crowdfunding for filmmakers and rewards to viewers in the form of cryptocurrency. M-Content has the backing of some major investors, including the United Arab Emirates Gargash Group, is commissioning its own films and has hired familiar names from the international television business this year, including Insight TV's Aaron Myers and Curiosity Stream's Brandon Fong. Goldfinch co-founder and chief operating officer Phil McKenzie, who is also M-Content chief content officer, spoke to me about the business, its aims and the opportunities Web3 presents for content partners. Goldfinch, we founded nearly nine years ago as a financing business for the indie sector, uh, both in film and TV and, and, and a small amount of games we've been involved in. Over the years, we've built out the production capability within the business, as well as invested into a number of other um, yeah, entertainment companies, whether that's production companies, management companies, um, distribution sales companies, um, yeah, along the years. So we've got, um, you know, broad experience of investing into businesses, projects, um, and providing, yeah, that kind of capital to get things moving really within the industry, we like to think. And you're UK based, um, just tell us about some of the projects that you've helped finance and some of the work that you've done in the TV sector in particular. We are UK based, we did an awful lot a couple of years ago uh, on around cookery shows with ITV, uh, we did an awful lot around documentaries as well. Um, Back in the day, we did a big one called um, Le Mans Racing is Everything for Amazon, uh, the Eichmann Show on BBC. Um, yeah, so we've done we've, we've done a more sizable amount on the feature film side, but a sort of increasing amount on the TV side, I'd say. And we've seen a lot more uh, projects coming to us through uh, a need to kind of maybe lean on or learn from the indie film finance model, the sort of deficit financing model. How can we sort of carve up rights and use those to, to kind of better fund and um, yeah, get projects off the ground? And um, as the, the world of, of film and TV, as you say, has kind of changed and financing models have, have changed also, um, particularly in recent years, you've began to explore the space of uh, cryptocurrencies with M content. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it's as, as an indie producer with, with that kind of hat on, um, you're always trying to find ways to get, get stuff made and, and particularly, you know, new pots of, of, of capital of cash to, to help fund it as well. Um, and, you know, I think there was, there, was, there was a lot of noise around Crypto Web 3, um, particularly kind of start to middle of this year. Um, and um, a fair bit before that, we were looking at it, not necessarily from a financing angle, but from a kind of blockchain angle of how could, you know, uh, uh, people had started talking about how can we use the tech to solve a lot of problems that we've got in the industry in terms of tracking payments and um, carving up royalties and things like that. Um, but as, you, as we sort of delve deeper in, we, we thought that there was really something there in terms of how can we um, yeah, give access to finance for more people as well than maybe are, are getting it and, and how can we um, yeah, you know, tell stories and help young filmmakers use this tech um, to yeah, fund their productions and, and, and get them off the ground. Um, and so that kind of led us to um, you know, where we are today, um, you know, with M Content was a partnership that, that we entered into with the mayor there, having spoken on a panel with him on Web3 and, you know, really, um, you know, kind of buying into his vision and what they'd created in a short bit of time there in terms of the streaming platform, the watch to earn model, which rewards the audience for how much content they're watching, um, but also that helps fund and help and the community uh, helps to fund filmmakers and the projects coming through the platform as well. Um, so a really kind of grand vision, but the guys have backed it up and built the platform, launched it, funded projects through it. And so now being here, it's how can we, um, you know, increase that pipeline of projects and people that understand what we're doing and, and get more projects off the ground using it. The Web3 element is an important bit to that, but um, in a lot of cases, it just needs to sit in the background and be a driver, the engine of it. Um, you know, our, our, our view is that the content business has, has to stand on its own two feet and that um, the Web3 is a differentiator, but we should also, you know, be using traditional models of, you know, indie funding and, you know, and, and how you put a project together to supplement that. 
And um, Goldfinch is, is part of, uh, of M Content, but you, you mentioned some of the partners that are on board there. Um, just tell us a little bit more about the people that are involved, the, uh, the, the fellow co-financiers that are involved, and um, you know what the vision is for it moving forwards. Yeah, so, 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 so the Goldfinch relationship is, is, is a partnership agreement we signed where, where Goldfinch provide you know, uh, production services and first look over the slate there and, and, and some funding should it be required on projects. In terms of the, 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 the sort of board and the team at M Content, especially in the last few months, um, there's been a real push to you know, bring in you know, experts in, in various fields to, to help drive that next bit of growth for us. Um, you know, one of the key highs has been Brandon Fong, uh, who's come into head of the streaming side of the business as CEO. So he's uh, come from Curiosity Stream and STX, and yeah, some incredible companies before that as well, just kind of in the tech sector. So, I mean, yeah, I've learned a huge amount from him just on the business side of the streaming world in the last, I think he's been in post for about four, four weeks now. Um, but the, 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 you know, one, one of the differentiators as well is, you know, the board and the, 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 the people behind the company, um, you know, were backed uh, or have been backed by, you know, the Gargash Group, who are, you know, an influential industrial group out of, out, out of the UAE. Um, they also have a family office. Um, you know, they see, you know, this very much as the future and are, you know, backing it for, you know, the, the, the long term in terms of a business. and you know, willing to put the capital behind it to support the vision and the team. And, um, you know, that's great. You know, it's good to have, you know, always good in this industry to have someone that is um, not just in it for a kind of project to project thing or, you know, wants to get their money out in a, a year or two, but, you know, wants to see something grow and, 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 and really be ambitious with it. They want to see this be something that is global and, um, you know, and, and, and is a serious player, you know, internationally. So it's about helping fund uh, projects and, and, and filmmakers who may otherwise struggle to, to find funding in the traditional industry but um, what's the appeal of that for the traditional TV business I suppose? Yeah it's, I, that, that is one part of it for sure is that how can we yeah, how, how help those people and projects that maybe don't get, get, the, uh, get the access and resources that they need. I'd say the, the key driver of the whole business is, is the watch to earn model that the streaming platforms built around that as a viewer it's about putting power back in the hands of the viewer you're you're rewarded um in in the tokens and the my content and the m content tokens um for the more content you watch the more to tokens you earn um, with those tokens you can then use them to choose other content that you might want to watch or support or and by support we mean you can kind of help with the marketing of it you can help with the funding of new projects um, but the the appeal to the um, to, to the sort of you know usual TV sector, film sector, is that outside of that more community-driven approach, we have a content budget that we'll be using to invest um, and acquire projects that sort of fall under our originals label. Um, so taking a more sort of traditional look at how can we, yeah, you know, really um, use that. Um, kind of group of you know bucket of our content to um, yeah make a splash and 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 really kind of show what we can do production wise as well as supporting the younger more interesting filmmakers and creators too coming through. And how's the message going down so far? I mean, blockchain, yeah. web, web three, these are all terms. The metaverse that the industry has been hearing for a number of years, but um, you know, are, are you getting the message across and are people sort of really embracing? Um, you know the technological change that you're anticipating with this. That, that's a that's a good question. Um, it's it's always people are curious and they're interested, and, and 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 I'd say the vast majority have a very open mind to what it is and to knowing more, and that's great. Um, and I, I think what we always try and do is is as much as possible give one or two really simple things that people can sort of think of in their next projects or why they should come back to us. You know. Um, the the other thing I think is great as well is the guys were quick out of the blocks in terms of commissioning and getting content made. So, you know, a lot of the 
uh, criticism leveled at Web3 is everyone kind of talks and hypes it up and there's a lot of hot air. Um, whereas, you know, we can point to some examples of saying, look, we've commissioned, you know, a six-part uh, series with Villain Studios and Inside TV and it's about to be put out at the end of the year called Blockchain Life Series. You know, they've, they've, they've gone out there and you can see practical exa examples um, of them being a proper content company already um, and putting some of that Web3 um, capital and Web3 knowledge and expertise to work um, in a traditional way that people, you know, at MIP will understand a bit better. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the... the the potential of it is, is is huge in terms of Web3 in general, and the ambition of, of um, content is, is huge as well. But it's it, it's definitely kind of pairing that back and and making it as as, as simple and as digestible to to the sort of normal industry as, as as possible. And that normally comes into you know how can we finance, acquire, co-produce your project, and um, and and to be honest, in most of those instances, they don't necessarily need to know about the Web3 elements that are the differentiator for the platform and for the audience in the background. So M Content is the the, the funding platform. Um, it's also the viewing platform. Yeah. But um, you reference Insight TV there, and uh, presumably your ambitions for distribution are wider as well for content that you you help to surface. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the 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 goal is the, the ambition is, is is to be a global platform and to and to be everywhere as we are currently. Um, I think because we're so young, we that that comes you know that means we can be flexible on the deals we can do and the partnerships we can strike. Um, so we can yeah sit alongside another platform or another um, uh, network broadcaster and. Um, yeah, release at the same time, or um, we can yeah work out which windows make best make sense for each of us as well. Um, you know, our goal at the moment is just how can we build more relationships and you know build out that pipeline of better and better content and raise that bar in terms of the quality of that content we're getting involved in. Um, and to do that, yeah, we've got to be we've got to be flexible. And, and to my point earlier, you've got to come in earlier and earlier to with with maybe a little bit more riskier money that that, that is harder to find in other places. Um, and actually, that kind of lends itself to the Web three funding model of of, uh, of providing that more trickier capital to find development equity. Um, yeah, you know, is is a natural fit for that more community driven funding model. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.